If you are new here, welcome. If you're a returning listener, welcome. I'm grateful for your presence. If you are new here, I'd like to just begin with a little formality and say that, hi, (laughs) my name is Marcella Kroll, and I am a professional tarot card reader, psychic medium, teacher of the metaphysical, and multimedia artist. I'm also a multidimensional neurodivergent being. What does that mean? It means I am autistic and I am a person that operates in, I would say, many realities. I also teach classes for teens, tweens, and adults about magic, divination, the history of it, how to work with it, and often I like to have the bend of it being practical and empowering because it should be utilized in that way in addition to your own healing. But today, something that I get asked about a lot or, you know, people requested, um, a number of people have requested a podcast episode about the tarot and wanted to offer you an introduction to tarot today. I have a couple of reasons why I don't teach this as a practical, meaning like I'm not, I don't offer this as a regular class. One of those reasons being is there's so much information out there and I, you know, it's just like, why, why would I teach it? I don't know. I think There are brilliant people out there who are offering it. There's also so many books and others uh, in ways that you can learn. Me personally, the tarot for me was a very personal journey. Uh, I did not have anyone to teach me how to read the tarot. Um, It was very intuitive and the most, um, I would say, learning that I would have experienced has been through the actual divination process for other people, like meaning giving other people readings. But yeah, um, you know, but today we're going to talk about tarot and where it comes from, you know, how to work with it. I also want to share some fun facts with you about the Rider-Waite-Smith deck and its illustrator and offer some insight to some of the most misunderstood cards and doing that with the help of some of my colleagues and people that I really admire within the magical and tarot community especially hearing their takes on some of these misunderstood cards and how to best work with them or utilize them in a reading. So first things first is what is divination? Divination is the practice of seeking knowledge of the future or the unknown by supernatural means. Well, there are many ways of divination and I'm sure you're familiar with at least two to three of them. Some forms of divination are cardomancy, which is using cards. It could be tarot, oracle, or playing cards, or even the Lenormand. 
is pendulum divination. There is tea leaf and coffee leaf reading divination. There are also many other ways of divination, whether it be with shells and bones or runes and scrying. And scrying can be done in a number of ways. Scrying can be done in um, objects like crystal balls or obsidian surfaces, mirrors and things. Scrying can be done in water and gazing. There's so many ways. Oh, even smoke divination and pyromancy, which is like candle reading and flame reading. There's so many beautiful ways of divining, which is just another way of seeing. So what is the tarot? The tarot is a pack of 78 playing cards. Unlike a traditional deck of playing cards, the tarot is broken down into 22 major arcana and 56 minor arcana that are made up of four suits. Within these four suits, we have what is traditionally called the court cards or face cards. The four suits are traditionally cups, wands, swords, and pentacles. I'm going to tell you more about these four suits and why they're important and discuss the court cards, but first I wanted to speak on a little history. Did you know that some of the earliest documentation of the tarot goes back into the early 1400s in northern Italy? It is quite different than what you would see it today. First of all, it's known as Terochi, and some of the oldest surviving tarot cards are from the Visconti Sforzo Tarot, which was a selection of images that would become cards that were created for a wealthy noble family as a wedding gift. The game of Tarochi made its way across Europe, including France, where it was renamed Tarot. In the 15th century, the Tarot de Marseille was created and it started to increase in popularity, as well as the use of oracle cards in the Lenormand. However, the cards, while they were a game, were not regularly used for divination until the late 18th century. A lot of the popularity of tarot cards can be definitely credited to the use of tarot and divination by the Romani people, who definitely utilized the, this beautiful art form to create connection and commerce for themselves. Tarot has been around for a very long time, and while well, not widely popularized or used, it hasn't been regarded until more recent years. I actually, you know, you see the resurgence of the tarot. Um, I mean, you definitely see it from the 60s and beyond, you know, my great um, grandmother was a seer and my grandmother on my paternal side was a tarot reader at Woodstock. I also have some stregas on my mother's side, so that's interesting, learning about different forms of divination with herbs and whatnot from that end of the family. But nowadays you can find so many types of tarot decks out in the world. There, um, it's like 
a real accomplishment for artists these days to create their own interpretation and expression of the tarot. And I also find that it's really interesting that, you know, there aren't that many tarot readers who have created their own deck, but many artists who have um, combined forces and collaborated with readers or other people knowledgeable to create, like, the guidebook and the artwork separately. Coming back to the breakdown of the deck, I want to talk about why are the four suits important. The suits allow us to navigate the potential themes and landscape of the reading. And each suit represents an element, and each element is connected to a vibe or theme of the reading. Each suit will hold and represent that element or theme, such as cups or water, and tend to connect us to the emotions in our relationships. Wands are fire and carry the energy of action, motivation, and opportunity. Swords are air and invite us into important conversations and thoughts and communication. Pentacles are earth and represent the physical and tangible world, and that can include nature, the physical, like what we can see, feel, and touch, as well as, you know, home, monetary value, money, and resources. What are court cards or face cards? I apologize for all the clicking that is Lord, my familiar bearded dragon who loves to be present when I am recording or doing a reading. So that little clicking is her doing rounds. Uh, Back to court cards or face cards. So traditionally, uh, standard tarot decks have multiple court cards, which represent people. These cards can include the king, the queen, the knight, and the page in each of the four suits. These cards can represent an archetype, a person, or a type of person in a reading. A lot of decks hold these as a gendered idea of a person, which I personally think can hinder the perspective of a reading. And that is part of why in my own tarot deck that I released um, this year, the Dreamer's Tarot, I've changed the court cards to reflect more of an archetype of the energy they represent. Actually, in my Dreamer's Tarot, there are multiple the car, multiple cards, like even in the Major Arcana, that the name has changed Um especially if it was more gendered or depicted a gendered relationship because I wanted it to be fluid and also more representative of the the energy the card held. So you're, I think moving forward, if tarot, this is just my opinion, by the way, I don't speak for everyone here. Um, my opinion is that for tarot to survive, it needs to evolve, just like all things. And it needs to be shifted out of the archaic foundations that it was founded in and subsequently, you know, grow up. (laughs) I respect the tarot so much, and I love the tarot so much. The tarot saved my tukus, okay? Um, 
when I was 18, I overdosed and I went to rehab. And one of the things that helped me stay on track was diving into astrology and tarot. And really, without any knowledge, just diving in and learning with books, there was no internet for me to research. And a lot of it was hands-on because it only came with the little teeny booklet that I had. And the first tarot deck I had wasn't even the Rider Waite. It was uh, the Egyptian tarot. That was the first deck. And then the, but I didn't even really connect with it until I, my roommate gave me the Thoth deck. And then off to the races it was. Um, but yeah, now I want to talk about the Rider Waite and P- Pamela Coleman Smith deck because. It is the one that you see everywhere. It's the one that in a lot of movies or television shows they use that. That one is the one with the, you would see the images from, you would recognize anyway. It is one of the most iconic decks and inspiration for, I would say, many, most tarot decks today. And I have to say, one of my favorites is the original Smith Weight deck, also known as the Rider Weight deck. The Rider Weight Tarot deck, originally published in 1910 under that name, it is one of the most popular and most printed tarot decks in history. The cards were drawn by illustrator um, Pamela Coleman Smith from the instructions of academic and mystic Arthur Weight and were published by the Rider Company. Pamela Coleman Smith, also known as Pixie Smith, was born on February 16th, 1878 in England. You gotta love that Aquarian energy. And she lived between Jamaica, England, and New York. She attended Pratt University and found some success in many areas of the arts. She also worked alongside her father as a traveling artist and was very much interested in mysticism and the occult. While her collaboration on the Smith-Waite deck may be her greatest legacy, she died in September 1951 and was barely compensated or acknowledged and recognized in her lifetime for this astounding achievement. We actually don't see proper acknowledgement for her and her involvement in the cards until the Smith-Waite Centennial Tarot deck was published by U.S. Game Systems in 2009 to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the creation of this deck. This deck is a faithful reproduction of the original deck published in 1910 and uses the original muted colors chosen by Smith. And what's beautiful about this, too, is there are so many details in the Centennial edition that you don't see in the Rider Waite reproductions. They're just lost because they've been reproduced so many times. They lost the detail. Like one of my favorite things, well, two of my favorite things that kind of go unnoticed um, in the Rider Waite deck that you see come back in the Smith Waite deck. Actually, there's several things, but let's start here. Um, there's the in the Nine of Swords, the man crying in bed. And in the centennial version, you can see the bedspread in the quilt, all of the astrological symbols in the quilt, which you don't see that in the, the other pressings. 
another one in the Five of Cups. You have in the Five of Cups, you have those three cups that are spilled and two that are upright. Well, if you look at the actual in the centennial version, the liquid that is coming out of the cups, you notice there's two that are have wine and the other one has green, indicating like poison. So there's so many stories within the each card that we lose track of until we go back into that centennial edition. Um, there's so many other little fun details, but I want to encourage you to seek those out because they make this process of reading into storytelling if you're looking, you know, for the, the details or what stands out to you. So I was really excited to also get on this episode some fellow tarot readers and magical people that I think have a beautiful relationship to the tarot and a unique perspective and understanding of the cards. And I wanted to hear their take on some of the cards that I find or feel are the most misunderstood or misinterpreted or kind of feared uh, cards that are in the deck. So for this episode, I asked a number of readers that I know and really enjoy their perspectives on the tarot for their hot take on some of these misinterpreted cards. You're going to hear from Angeliska Polacek, a.k.a. Sister Temperance Tarot, uh, about the Three of Swords. The beautiful and creative genius Edgar Fabian Frias speaks on The Hanged Man. The delightful Sterling Moon and her interpretation of the tarot. The really genius and, to me, funny friend of mine, Eliza Swan, also the founder of the Golden Dome School, and her interpretation of the devil, and the absolutely brilliant Diana Rose Harper speaking on death. I hope you enjoy these excerpts, and I will be back just after to talk about a couple of simple layouts and resources for you if you are beginning your journey with the tarot. Enjoy. First up, Angeliska Polacek, a.k.a. Sister Temperance Tarot, on the Three of Swords. So the Three of Swords traditionally is a heartbreak card. It is absolutely a card of pain and often of loss. But the way that I really like to think about it is to remember that the Three of Swords, when it really comes down to it, is the heart in conflict with the mind. And it's really helpful, I think, to compare the Three of Swords to the Two of Swords and to look at them and notice that in these two air cards, these two swords cards that are really dealing with mental pain, mental anguish, and the acknowledgement that most of our pain really comes from our mind. Um, The Two of Swords, on the other hand, is the heart and mind at peace, the heart and mind in harmony rather than in conflict. 
So when the heart and mind are in conflict, the heart is telling you one thing, right? I have feelings. It hurts. I've got emotions. And the mind often is saying, shut up, stupid heart. Why do you have to have those feelings? And they kind of do battle, right? They beat up against each other. They knock up against each other. And then that causes the thunderstorms that in the traditional Pamela Coleman Smith deck, you'll see, and it's really interesting in both two, uh, two of swords and three of swords, you'll see the water coming in, the emotions coming in to the analytical space of the mind and of the air, right? So in the Three of Swords, I, it's one of my favorite images, actually. It's so evocative and so powerful. You have this thunderstorm. So you see the water, what's happening with the emotions. They're in turmoil. It's intense. And the heart, right, the place of the emotions, the seat of the, all of our feelings, is being pierced by these three swords. One way that I like to work with swords is to drop the S and think of words, right? Because swords, air, the element of the mental realm is all about our words, our ideas, our thoughts. And again, this is where we can experience so much pain. I think about how some breakups are really like not that painful when you have acceptance and you're like, oh yeah, we're breaking up. Yeah, I, I knew that was coming or I'm, I'm down for it actually. And then some are just so incredibly devastating. And, you know, sometimes it's the same with deaths. There's some deaths, some losses that we go through where we've prepared ourselves. We are in a place of peace and acceptance. We're ready to let go. The thing that really hurts is when we're not able to be in acceptance. We're not able to give permission for what is happening to be happening. And so a way to work with this card, a way to heal this card is for the mind to take the heart by the hand and to bring it to that small, quiet room called acceptance, called giving permission for what is to be. And the heart may say, I don't want this. I hate this. This is so horrible and so painful. And the mind says, I know, I know. And yet this is what is, this is how it is. And we're going to hang out here for as long as it takes until we can give ourselves permission. I've had a long journey with this card and learning how to give permission um, and to find acceptance for some of the most painful and unacceptable things in my life. And it's something that I really love um, working with, uh, helping clients through. And um, yeah, really grateful for the opportunity to share my perspective on this card. Next up, we have the delightful Edgar Fabian Frias speaking on The Hanged One. Yeah, so I feel like The Hanged One is a deeply, deeply spiritual card. It is a sacred place of surrender, a place of radical acceptance. There are moments when we really need to stop, to look around, to notice what is here in this moment. And a lot of transformations and changes that take place in our life happen only after moments of deep contemplation, of rest, of looking within. And this card is a powerful invitation to surrender, to let go, to hold on to your faith, 
your expectation about what's coming and also to allow, to allow within the surrender for what is wanting to emerge. It can be scary in a capitalist society to stop, (laughs) to really let yourself rest. I know that we are all sold a narrative that progress is linear, that we need to be out in the sun and that we need to be moving in a certain direction. And the tarot is here to remind us that there are cycles that there are sacred spaces that we need to move into. And the hanged one is really an invitation to look at reality in all of its layers, all of its complexities. To know that, to see it, to feel it, to be it, that these are things that allow us to move forward with clarity with awareness, with knowledge about what is possible, about what is needed. This card comes in between the judgment card and the death card, which are also cards that people can fear within readings. And so the hanged one is in many ways like a moment of internal reflection and even of death as well, clarity, vision, being able to see parts of yourself that you couldn't see before. These are all deaths, and these all take time to integrate, to be with. And so one thing I want to invite you, if you receive this card within a reading, is to take stock of the moments where you're feeling like you need to be doing something or those moments where you're feeling lost and feeling like you're grasping at something. This is really an invitation to let go of a need, a desire for change, an attachment for an outcome, and to really let yourself be with what is, to cherish what is. Many people before they pass have moments of reawakening to the magic of their life. And this is one of those luminous reawakenings. And I think that's why in some of the renditions of the hanged one, the person who is hanging has a halo surrounding them. This is a deeply spiritual card. It is sacred and it is a sacred part of the cycles that we move through. So receive this card with deep gratitude. Know that it is here to support you, that it is a part of transformation, and witness what emerges. Witness what happens when you open your arms, when you are hung upside down. What happens in those moments? What are you being gifted? Hi there, my name is Sterling Moon, and the card that I get to talk about is the Tower. The Tower is definitely one of those cards that scares newer tarot readers and sometimes even more experienced readers, and there's some good reason for that. 
And yet, like with every single card in the tarot, we have all lived these lessons many, many times. And even the cards that carry harder messages also carry good messages and the tower is no different. So if you've never, if you're a newer reader and you're not familiar with the major arcana and the how they tell us, the cards tell a story, which is the fool's journey to the path of enlightenment. The fool's journey is all of our journey. I encourage you, encourage you to find a resource that explains that because it'll help the story to really sink in a little bit more. So by the time the fool reaches this point in their journey, they are tired, they're weary, they've experienced some hard lessons, and they're ready for something, some stability, something that feels familiar, something that feels sure. And they encounter this tower and as they get closer, these, a bolt of lightning comes down out of the sky and strikes it. And it's just this kind of gory scene with like, you know, kings and queens jumping out of the windows and the whole thing just comes down and the fool is just shocked and, you know, walking among the rubble and just trying to like make sense of it all. And so the good news with this story is that the tower that falls was built on a shoddy foundation, even though it looked sure and everlasting it really was something that was like not built to last it wasn't healthy um, i think we can all think of a lot of structures in our life that seem like they would never change and that are now starting to we're seeing the erosion we're seeing the start of the crumbling and so this card can mean usually the thing that's tough about the about the tower is that it does indicate something sudden and dramatic happening it's by its very definition, it's something that generally can't be predicted because it's sudden and unexpected. And so sometimes that can be things like death, job loss, um, illness, implosion of a relationship, that kind of a thing. But the thing is to remember is that as hard as that stuff can be, it often what the tower takes down is something that what is it was corrupted. It wasn't healthy. It was diseased. And so once you know about it, you can deal with it. Once the structure crumbles, you can build up something that's much more solid. The other way that I see the tower come to pass both in my life and with my clients is sometimes, you know, the, the tower will come up in, in people's readings when everything in their life is like externally, just as it's always been, but inside they are changing. The tower that's crumbling is within them. Their, you know, your values are shifting, your priorities are shifting. You are just changing dramatically on the inside and trying to figure out how you're going to walk in this world that's just, you know, thinking that you're just the same as you've always been. And so when I see this card reversed, sometimes that can be the meaning that I see. Sometimes I look at upright cards as like the way that we walk in the outside world. And then when it's reversed, it's like the messages is more, they're more internalized. Um, and also with reversal, sometimes it can mean that you are, so in, in reverse tower, it might be somebody who is trying to stick their head in the sand and deny that there are structures and things imploding that really need to come down and be dealt with. And you're just kind of pretending everything is okay when it's really not okay. Your whole world is on fire. Um, and then sometimes the reverse tower will also mean that the, you're through the worst of it. And now you get to rebuild the, the, um, you're in the rebuilding phase. Really, you have to look at the cards around it. So even though the tower is a it hits a card with some very hard lessons, it's also a really good card because most of us, when we go through hard things, that's also when we have the opportunity to experience a lot of personal growth. And that's always a good thing. Thank you, Sterling, for your thoughts on the tower.
Next up, we have Eliza Swan, the founder and one of the teachers at the Golden Dome School, and her thoughts on the devil. One of my favorite cards in the tarot deck is the devil. And while this card has layers of meaning around the trap of materialism, and while there are very real evils afoot in the shape of greed and oppression and many other things, the devil card has magic in it that gives me so much pleasure. I work with the Camwan deck, which is a 15th century deck from France, and on that devil card there are all kinds of marvelous sex and nature deities combined. Um, Balbo is there with her face grinning out of the devil's belly, and she's the Greek goddess of mirth, sexual liberation, and body jokes. Um, Pan is there too, and I tell this story to my clients often when the devil comes up around making big decisions or big moves. The root of the word panic comes from the god Pan, who was said to make people seize up with irrational fears and phobias when he would play his pipes. But he's also the god of wilderness and sexual pleasure. So this, the devil card can, in, in one aspect, be seen as an encouragement to look at what scares you as a fertile wilderness of yet unknown pleasures. And it's also an encouragement to learn healthy fear responses. So all of the aspects of the devil card that encourage us to move into the wilderness of the unknown and to move into pleasure and to move into embodiment and abandon and joy and nature and sex, um, I just love. I love the devil. Hi, my name is Diana Rose Harper. I am a tarot reader and an astrologer based in Southern California. You can find me on social media as at Damashena, and that is spelled D-D-A-M-A-S-C-E-N-A-A. And today I'm going to talk to you about the death card. Now, the death card freaks people out because people are freaked out by death. <laughs> you know, the, the end of something, the end of a life, the end of a relationship, the end of a season... Uh, the end of an era, like these are all things that bring us into an experience of loss. And even though loss is completely natural, uh, just a baked in part of being alive, grief and loss and navigating loss are all things that can be really challenging. We also happen to live at least, you know, I do inside of these United States of America, I perceive a culture that is really afraid of endings, afraid of loss, um, afraid of the circularity of life, because life and death go hand in hand with one another. One of the things that I find a lot of comfort in and that I will remind my students and clients is literally none of us get out of this life alive. You know, we live in a perpetual state of change. Uh, we live in a perpetual experience of decay and generation. And the death card in tarot reminds us of this completely natural and completely non-hierarchical experience. 
and the Rider-Waite-Smith and decks that are inspired by the Rider-Waite-Smith, um, the death card often depicts death in such a way <clears throat> that emphasizes that peasants and kings alike fall prey to death eventually. It is the great equalizer. And at the same time, death's natural, naturalness also reminds us of the finitude of all of our experiences here in mortal existence. Everything comes to an end. If everything comes to an end, can we understand that the things that we love are precious because in part of their eventual ephemerality? If everything comes to an end, does that help us to endure circumstances that are really challenging? I think it's also important to remember that, um, you know, as I mentioned before, death and life are inherently linked to one another. The green things that grow on this earth grow in soil that is enriched by dead things, things that used to be alive. Our bodies grow and thrive because we eat things that used to be alive. Our ideas even grow and thrive because we have consumed other ideas, assessed them, weighed them, measured them, discarded certain ones, broken other ones apart, and then taken those pieces to create new ideas. That's composting. We do these with our emotions whenever we process. Um, we do this whenever we assess the choices that we've made in the past and broken them into their disparate pieces and allowed those learnings, those lessons, to contribute to new choices as we move forward. Death reminds us that change is inevitable. And if change is inevitable, what are you going to do with the time that you currently have, with the way things currently are? How are you going to contribute to change in positive ways? The death card rarely, I would say, in most people's tarot readings, indicates the actual death of a loved one, um, but it nearly always is an invitation into the reality of the constant transformation that being alive simply is. Don't fear the death card. Fearing the death card in its own way is a fear of life itself. I really want to thank everyone that contributed to their interpretation of these misunderstood but quite viable cards and the impact that they have had on their lives and perhaps the way they view them in a reading. Tarot, while can be used for divination, I really love to see this particular style and tool when using the cards. And that is using, you know, tarot for your own empowerment in daily practices. And it's so important to build a relationship with the deck. 
Tarot for Empowerment are not typical readings. They're, they're very interactive, and they can help you use the cards for yourself to find answers and solutions that you want and need in your life. And I think they work really well because most people, whether they want to acknowledge or admit it, have all the answers they need. And generally, those things are buried so deep inside that the tarot is a really brilliant physical mirror that can reflect to them what it is that they're searching for, that they already know. And sometimes we need a little help uncovering and discovering these things and bringing them to the surface. And this is really like a brilliant way to do that. So, and that's why they become so powerful readings. You know, if you're open to it, they can be um, such an affirmation and a validation for things that maybe you already know or have you sensed but couldn't articulate and put to words. So the readings can be really powerful and, you know, by that sheer act, very empowering. So I want to talk to you about deck selection and maybe some layouts and practices and ways to work with tarot for empowerment. The first thing that often people ask about selecting a deck is, do I have to have a deck gifted to me in order to work for, like work with it? Will it work if I pick one out myself? And I think there's a lot of superstition and mythology around getting a deck, but it's just that. I love the idea of receiving a tarot deck as a rite of passage, but like, hear me out. You do not have to be gifted a deck. The first deck I ever had as a 18 year old was gifted to me by my adopted dad, my dad who raised me, his mother, my grandmother, Barbara. And she gave me um, an Egyptian tarot deck because she knew I loved ancient Egyptian things. And while it was really cool to have this deck, I, it's funny, I didn't really connect to it. I used it, but it just like, it never, it's interesting. I thought, oh, maybe that's just how you work with it. It felt very mechanical to me. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the art, but like I wasn't, it's like picking up an instrument that you kind of intuitively know how to work with. Um, I didn't feel totally connected to that deck, but I knew I was supposed to work with tarot. And a big part of my tarot journey, you know, is... I wasn't um, it, like taught by anyone. I had to teach myself. The deck that I first first connected with, though, was around. Uh, so I had, like I said, the Egyptian tarot at eighteen, and then at nineteen, my roommate had the Thoth deck, and was like, "You should use this," and I instantly, instantly, instantly connected with it. There was something about when you connect with a deck and the an immediate desire and almost autopilot mode that goes on for me when I connect to a deck is it's really uncanny. Like I know right away if the deck and I have chemistry. And I definitely had that with the Thoth deck without really knowing why. 
And then I used that for a while, but then I found this deck, this vampire tarot, which was like super goth and 90s looking. And I loved that deck so much. And I used that deck for years. I used that deck. Actually, I wish I still had. I don't. In my many moves, I I had let it go. But I'd love to find that deck again just because it was so uh, 90s art looking. And it was so fun. Um, and it definitely scared a lot of people when I moved to California and I started doing readings with it. It was very uh, intense for a lot of people. They weren't used to the imagery being that like gothic. But, you know, here's the thing. I've been gifted decks, and don't get me wrong, they're beautiful, um, exquisite even, but it doesn't always account for chemistry or being able to read them. Some decks that are out there that everyone loves, and I personally, I pick it up and it's like picking up a brick. And I've been reading for years, I mean, a couple decades, you know, like that's, it doesn't mean that the deck is bad or that I'm not a good reader. It just means we don't have chemistry. Like, do you have chemistry with every single person you meet? It's the same thing. So here's, hear me out. If there is a deck that you feel like, wow, I feel really drawn to that and for the right reasons that you want to utilize it. Um, in your practice or for whatever, for personal or professional use, then go for it. You know, there is a sweetness to being gifted a deck. And if you really need that, you know, I've, I've had friends like be like, okay, I want this one, but can you get it for me? (laughs) And I've done that, you know, it's, it's really fun to be able to do that. So, you know, in terms of connecting and building a relationship with your deck, I would say, think of it like any relationship. You got to spend time with with it, get to know it. You know, take it out on dates. Um, maybe you keep it um, to yourself for a little bit while you're getting to know its ins and outs. Maybe you sleep with it by your bed. Um, maybe you build a connection and a relationship with it, uh, by asking it direct questions like, excuse me, something that I love doing with, um, a deck when I get it is doing an actual relationship reading with it. Uh, so we can get to know each other better, you know, um, something that I love to do is like shuffle the cards, right? Personally, I don't like the card shuffling like you do in a game, like with playing cards, because I think it can, for me personally, that's just my own vibe, um, because I, I don't want you bend, when you bend the cards and you kind of are rough with them that way, I use the cards so much, what happens is if I'm continually like shuffling them into each other uh, in an aggressive way, what happens is the paper starts to expand, and that can like, you know, make them get really big and kind of break them down over time. Um, But it's a personal choice how you shuffle and how you split the cards up, right? And the other thing I want to quickly say before I talk about the relationship reading between you and your deck is who touches your deck? That's up to you. I uh, got in the habit a while back, this was before even just 
I wasn't really doing virtual readings. I was doing a lot of readings in person in Venice at Mystic Journey Bookstore, um, where I worked for 10 years. Um, I don't let people touch my cards. <laughs> I'm very protective of them because I would have... People would come in and they'd be so rough with them. And I, I'm so... Um, I care for my cards in such a way that, like, for me, they're a sacred tool, right? They're a sacred object. But you do you. Um and what works for you. I just found that for me, I need to be holding them and I don't want people touching them. Again, just my, my own personal, you know, quirk with it. So coming back to, uh, building a relationship with your deck and doing a reading with it. I love to do this when I get a new deck and you can do it with an old deck too, especially if you feel like, you want to spice it up or get to know it, see where it's at, see how it's grown, how it's matured. Um, I like to shuffle the cards, mix them up, essentially. Not rough shuffle, but hand over hand kind of shuffle. Some people split them up in piles. I And they'll pull from the top of the deck or the bottom. Uh, or they'll fan them out. Like you see them fan them out on the table and then pull from each area. I personally like to hand over hand shuffle them and then I will blindly pull from where my hand is energetically drawn. It's very intuitive for me, this process, because that's how I learned. I didn't learn from someone teaching me. I didn't learn from a very well thought out, well intentioned book. I had the little pamphlet with the book, like the little booklet that can come with it, but I didn't have a formal instruction except for, uh, there was like a tarot workbook that was out, um, that I found once around the, the Thoth deck. And that helped me with understanding like soul cards and things like that. Okay. Really? I'm really meaning to talk about this <laughs> relationship reading. So you shuffle the deck the way you need to. And then I want you, you're going to pull four cards, right? And this is your relationship between you and this deck and what this deck has to share uh, with you. So you can pull a card and ask the, uh, the deck, like, one, how do you see yourself? Pull one card. The second card is, how do you see me? And this would be your deck's impression of you. The third card would be, how can I get to know you better? Three. And then for the fourth card, you can say, what do you need from me to feel supported? And four. That will be your fourth card. And then just kind of prompt like yourself to journal on each card in relation to those questions. You know? Because that's going to be very telling of your relationship. And it would be really interesting to do that with car, like a deck maybe that you've been working with for a while if you've never done that. Um, you know, getting to know you. How you care for your cards and how you keep them protected is also really important. Like I had already mentioned, you know, for me, I don't let a bunch of people touch them. Um, I periodically go through and I cleanse the deck by um, going through and turning over each card individually, one by one. And I, I do like a gratitude prayer and a thanks 
to the deck as I'm doing this. And it helps me clear it out. Some people will smudge. Some people will use crystals. All those things that they find nourishing and clearing, they do. I don't always do those things. But I'm more of a, like, let me acknowledge you. Let me witness you kind of person when it comes to clearing my deck. And then retiring them when they want to retire. You know, really paying attention to that. So... Um, I think you'll know when a deck wants to retire. That's just my, I mean, I've always known when the deck, I suddenly become disinterested. I find another one that's more like uh, in tune with who I am. I think that can happen too. As you change, your deck will evolve. I've had that happen, certainly. So some simple layout and spread ideas. I'm not going to get too much into uh, layouts and spreads because this is a podcast and it's it's just voice, so you're not going to be seeing it. Um, I will recommend um, some reference books and things if you are interested in diving further. Again, this is just an intro episode. So for the simple layout and spreads, you can do a one-card spread, which is just one card, and you can utilize it as a card of the day. What is the card of the day? What is the inspiration for the day? What is the energy or muse of this situation or this day? Those are some really brilliant questions you can ask yourself and ask the deck to show you. You can also say, what is my higher self trying to tell me right now? And pull a card. You can also meditate on the energy of that card. That can be another exercise you do if you're wanting to get to know a deck. Maybe you make a commitment to pulling one card or studying the energy of one card a day. A three-card layout or spread can be really uh, to the point you know, if you're if you're looking to do like a very quick and to the point reading, I would say you could do with three cards. You can do past, present, future, um, morning, noon, evening, or morning, noon, night. Another three card spread would be body, mind, and spirit, which is pretty cool. These are very simple. Again, simple three card, quick to the point readings. We can go more into depth, like I had mentioned with the relationship reading with the deck, but this time you do, a f- it's a four card reading again, and this can be a relationship reading between people, a community, a creative project, a situation, a belief, a job, or a project. So think about that. You can do a relationship reading between you and your familiar. You can do a relationship reading between you and your, whether it's your music or your art. You can do a relationship reading um, to your community. It doesn't have to just be a person to person or that kind of thing. You can do a relationship reading to your, your, your spiritual journey if you want. I like to use the four card spread a lot because that it, to me is also clear and cut to the point. I do that in my, um, And you can use this with tarot and oracle, which I like to use oracle a lot. 
So say like the first card in a four card spread, the first card would represent what is the energy that we share or what are we meeting on? The second card would be what energies um, or energy can be released at this time that may be hindering the situation or negatively impacting the situation. The third card would be what energy can be um, called in or magnified that is supportive or needs to be uh, brought in at this time. And then the fourth card could be, you know, where is this going, the outcome, or what is the highest potential of this situation? So those are really some very simple one three and four card layout and spreads that can help you as well in personal readings, readings for others, and in your daily practice. Meditating on cards is really good too, especially if you have them like out as a visual aid or object, especially like if you do magic and you want them on your altar or say you um, use the image of a card as your home screen on your phone, your tablet, or your computer. That's always really cool too. I wanted to share before we go some books and resources that I find very helpful with the tarot. Um, Also some information about some folks that I know that teach tarot. So books and resources. Now, again, this is just my personal opinion. I'm, I'm, and it's very probably, you know, this is kind of a short list. Um, I'm sure there are plenty of other books out there that are really fantastic and wonderful. Um, you know, I would really encourage you if you have books that you really think are reputable and like cool for learning tarot, like, I don't know. Donate them to the library. I love that. I mean, when I get um, certain books in, because I teach tarot for teens and tweens with the Los Angeles Public Library, um, I will get some of these books and I will donate them so that they can be in circulation so that the kids I'm working with, if they want to check them out, they can. Because not all of these kids have access to you know, purchasing these things and their you know, family or parents and things like that. Not everybody is like, approving So I like to offer it, you know, through the library, like, again, donation style. At least it's in circulation in the system. So Tarot for Teens um, is a pretty cool, just like, again, these are all just my opinion and basic books about the subject that I find they're cute and they're helpful and they're not overwhelming, but they're not insulting either. (laughs) So Tarot for Teens by um, MJ Abadi. The last name is A-B-A-D-I-E. How to Deal by Marissa de la Pena. The Way of Tarot by Alejandro Jodorowsky. Madame Pamita's Magical Tarot by Madame Pamita. Ancestral Tarot by Nancy Hendrickson. And the Tarot Bible by Sarah Bartlett. Again, this is just a short list of books that in my experience over the years, I found that the teens and tweens really enjoyed. And um, I enjoyed some, you know, learning this, their, these different perspectives as well. 
And like I already mentioned, I am a program presenter for the Los Angeles Public Library, which means I teach Intro to Tarot and Tarot for Empowerment to teens and tweens on the subject through the Los Angeles Public Library. And lately, we've been doing it online periodically. I would say um, it's not a schedule, like a set schedule. It's just like depends on, you know, the library foundation and if they can have me come in and if there's an interest. So you can check that out at lapl.org. Um, but I don't normally teach adults tarot. I'll teach Oracle, intro to Oracle for adults. I don't teach adults tarot. Uh, I don't think that I need to. It's such a, like, there's so much information out there. And, um, you know, I don't, I'm not, I, I know a bit, but I'm, I don't like being an authority with adults. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I love the adults, but I don't always like teaching adults. The teens are really rad, and I love their openness and their ability to bring their story and narrative to the table in such a really cool way, and no shade to the adults. But here are some folks that I know that teach tarot to adults, or have information about tarot that I think is pretty rad. We have um, Corinna Rosella at Rise Up Good Witch, Eliza Swan, who you heard earlier from the Golden Dome School, Lindsay Mack with Wild Soul Healing, Mary Kay Greer, and Amanda Yates Garcia, who is also known as Oracle of LA on Instagram, who has a podcast called Between the Worlds, that is on, you know, iTunes and Spotify, where, like, each episode goes in depth and at length about a singular card, and it's a really fascinating take, and there's lots of, um, there's a lot of musical references and things like that, and I actually had the pleasure of being on to talk about the, um, you know, Five of Swords card. And which is like one of my least favorite cards, by the way, but it was so fun to discuss. Thank you again for being on this journey with me as we cover a very, very minimal intro to tarot in this beautiful hour together. Special thanks to my guests for lending their interpretations, their voices, and their wisdom. I'm going to include in the show notes uh, all of their info, like I mentioned, as well as some of those honorable mentions of people who offer teachings on tarot. And I will also include the books that I was referring to in the show notes. Thank you again for joining me on this epic ride of life. Catch you next time, and blessed be.